Uh, well, hello again, everybody. You just heard from me, so this is like kind of a letdown, right? You're like, oh, no, this guy again? All right, well, fine. But uh, as James said, we are now entering into the Christmas season. Thanksgiving is gone, and so the controversial gray area of whether or not it's okay to play Christmas music is now over. It's officially okay. Some of you guys are like holdouts, so you're like, you're really delayed gratification, and you're like, no, December 1st. That's when it begins. That's great, too. You're welcome here. All are welcome. This is a place of grace and acceptance in addition to truth. The truth is that Thanksgiving is the mark. So there you go. You're wrong, but you're welcome here. Um, but we're beginning this series uh, between now and Christmas, really kind of culminating at our Christmas Eve celebration. Like James said, it's going to be at the Catalina Room, which will be our new venue. And so it'll be this awesome time to gather and celebrate as a church family, but also to preview what's to come in the next season of our church in 2022 uh, for our second service. Uh, but, but in this time, we're going to be going through a series that we're just calling Simple Christmas. Because as we celebrate this Advent season, the season where we, an we anticipate the celebration of Jesus' coming, where we remember the fact that God, the Son, the creator of the universe, became one of us, came into his creation to rescue us from the inside out. As we, as we celebrate that truth and remember it, we do so in the midst of a world that is that in all seasons, in our season, in its own unique way and flavor, uh, is not all that it should be. And so as we kind of parse through the noise and the chaos and the distraction and the anxiousness, we're coming back to this simple idea that in this season, as in all of life, we celebrate Jesus. Our hope is fixed on Jesus that we're looking towards Jesus, our hope of glory. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this Advent. We're starting it off this week uh, by looking at a small episode in the Gospel of Luke. After the birth of Jesus, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 38. So if you've got your own Bible, you can uh, pull that up or phone you want to pull it up on. Uh, I'm going to read. We'll pray and ask God to speak to us through his word, and then we'll see what he has to say to us. So Luke chapter 2, going from verse uh, 22 to 38. You can read along with me. This is the account of the gospel writer Luke, starting in verse 22. Again, Jesus has already been born, just been born, and this is an episode that happens shortly after his birth. Starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Mary and Joseph, brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons and a partridge in a pear tree. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would, see, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That is, the Lord's anointed one, the rescuer. And he came in the spirit, that Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
Gentiles, for the nations, for the peoples, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's God's word for us this morning, written by the gospel writer Luke in his own style and language and context, but inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray now and ask that he would speak and show us whatever he would have us to see. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for what this season represents, that we celebrate the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We praise you that we can live life in your presence, that you draw us in because of what you've done for us in Jesus, that everything that we lost at the fall, everything that's broken because of our mistrust in you can be restored and redeemed, and we can become the kind of men and women that you always made us to be in your presence, loved by you. And so, God, I pray now that you would speak to us. Would you show us whatever you want us to see, God? We pray that wherever we're coming from, whether a passage like this is familiar or totally unfamiliar, whether we've been walking with you for a long time or we're not even sure we would consider ourselves a Christian yet or sure that we wouldn't consider ourselves a Christian yet and we're just here because we're curious, I pray that for every single one of us, you would give us a fresh word. God, I pray that you'd speak to us in an individual and personal way. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're for us in Jesus. God, I pray as... um, as I always do, that you would give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts. I pray that you would do this all by the Spirit of God. Thank you that there's nothing we could ever do that that would make you love us less. Thank you that we're completely secure in your love in Jesus. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, of the many features that define our particular place and time, one in particular is a hallmark. It's anxiousness. Our cultural moment is loaded with anxiousness. There was a recent article in Vogue magazine that was pretty straightforward with it, put it like this. It said, recent studies have declared this generation to be the most anxious in history. Anxiety comes in many forms, but the simplest way to describe it is feeling worried or nervous about the future or uncertain situations. That was a writer in Vogue summarizing research before a global pandemic a tumultuous election cycle, economic disruption, and all of your tense conversations over Thanksgiving dinner, right? So this is, this is by far, according to the research, the most anxious period in recorded history. Research has shown that the levels of anxiousness have been rising steadily for years. There's a recent um, study from the American Psych- Psychiatric Association, and so that 62% of Americans feel more anxious this year than they did last year. So our anxiousness comes out in so many ways. 
It comes out in our relationship with ourself. We feel it in our bodies, the tension, this, the, the, the way that anxiousness sits in the air in so many of our life experiences. We feel it in our rela- relationships with other people, especially with those that we disagree on about cultural issues. Anyone have any tense conversations over Thanksgiving? Don't raise your hand because you're probably sitting next to the person, unless you just want to lean into the conflict and just like rip it off like a Band-Aid, that's fine too, as long as you do it with grace and truth. Can you just imagine, like, sitting around the Thanksgiving table, and that one relative starts circling around a controversial topic, like a shark circling its prey, right? And it's just like, it's getting closer and closer to getting to it, and you're just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, politics. No. Oh, come on. You know, and the anxiousness is just sitting in the air. We feel it in our relationship with God. Will God be enough? Will he come through? There's anxiousness sitting in our cultural moment. You might be thinking, okay, well, I was doing great. I'm sitting here on the beach. Just had some nice time with family. Everything's good. Now I feel anxious. So thank you. Great. Okay, wonderful. Well, my apologies. But the question that's begging to be asked as we come into this season of Advent and this text in particular, and as we reflect on the coming of Jesus in general, the question that's begging to be asked is this. In our cultural moment of overwhelming anxiousness, does the coming of Jesus change anything for those who would follow him? And Luke chapter 2 moves us towards an answer by showing us two things in this small episode of the interaction of a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna with the baby Jesus. Luke chapter two moves us towards an answer to what the coming of Jesus means in our moment of anxiousness by showing us the one thing we most long for and the only way for us to really see it. It shows us the one thing that we most long for and the only way to really see it. And seeing both of those things together changes everything about how we experience the anxiousness of our cultural moment. We'll begin by looking at the one thing we most long for and how Luke chapter 2 shows us. See, the, the reality of the human experience, the reality of the human soul is all of us long for meaning in something greater than ourselves. We are, we are like meaning-making, meaning-searching machines. Uh, the, the writer David Foster Wallace was a, a critically acclaimed author, wrote a book called Infinite Jest. Not a follower of Jesus, at least not in, in, in an orthodox sense, but he had something so insightful to say about this in a commencement speech he gave at a small liberal arts college. Here's how he put it. He said, here's something that else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, by which he didn't mean the actual philosophical category of thought. You'll see what he means in a second. He said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. It is a true Uh, is a true reality of the human condition that we long for meaning, we long for identity, we long for purpose. We long to worship, in other words, to use the language of the writers of the Bible and of of, um, religious traditions. We long to worship. But here's the thing that David Foster Wallace goes on to experience. 
Not only do we have the choice of what we choose to worship, but what we choose to worship has implications for the way that we experience life. Here's what he said. He said, if you worship money and things, if there are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What he's tapping into is this reality that we were made to worship. And we look for worship in all kinds of things, but what we choose to worship has implications on our actual experience of life. And he lists off all these common things in which we might find meaning, a sense of personal validation. And he says, all these things, when we look for them to provide ultimate meaning in life, none of them are wrong in and of themselves. Nothing is wrong about wanting influence. Nothing is wrong about uh, caring about about your appearance. Nothing is wrong about your intellect. But if you look for ultimate meaning in those things, it will go south for you. And we could add many more things to the list, even better seeming things. We could add to the list, worship your family, and they will feel always under the pressure of your expectations, crushed by the burden of carrying the weight of your soul, a weight they were never meant to carry. Worship yourself and your own sense of kind of finding yourself or being enough for yourself just in and of yourself with nothing else to give you meaning and purpose. And you will feel the overwhelming burden to distinguish yourself from other people because after all, your hope in this world is to be your unique self distinguished from other people. We could add an on and on the list and we could see that what we choose to worship has implications for our experience of life. And as we can see that so many of these things, where we might worship, have negative implications for our life, what we have to observe is that doesn't the negative implications for our life of worshiping the wrong things, doesn't that imply that there is a thing that we were meant to worship? In the same way that the existence of food that's bad for your body implies the existence of food that's good for your body. In the same way that pain implies the existence of non-pain. If there are certain things that have bad outcomes, it implies the possibility at least of a good outcome for our worship, of a thing that we were made to worship. And so the question is, what were we made to worship? What's the one thing that we really long for? The one thing that would meet the deepest needs of our souls? And we see it in the life of this man, Simeon, in Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going with all this, if you were wondering. You know, we know very little about Simeon. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the writings of Scripture. But what we do know about Simeon is that he was righteous and devout in the words of Luke 2.25, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. He set his hope on something, and it was this thing, the consolation of Israel, that he hoped would happen through the story of what God was doing in the world. Which is to say that Simeon was waiting for God's promises to his people to be fulfilled. His longings were set on God himself and what God promised he would do in his promises to 
his people. And you're like, great, I don't know what any of that means. Here's what Simeon knew. Here is putting ourselves in the mindset of Simeon, waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Simeon was aware that whether we realize it or not, and left to our own devices, we don't realize it, the greatest longing of every human heart is relationship with God in the presence of God. The greatest longing of every human heart is relationship with God in the presence of God. And this is the story of the scriptures, the story that, that uh, we've been looking at over the last several weeks as we were looking at, in the series, uh, looking through the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus. And it was also the story that informed Simeon's hope, the story of God's redemptive plan to bring relationship with him in his presence. It's a story that begins with good creation, that our God is a God who's existed from all eternity, and he is in his very character, love and holiness and goodness, and exploding out of his love and holiness and goodness. He created a world that was good, a, a world in which the first people existed in goodness, in relationship with God, in the presence of God. It's also a story of fall, a story of as we can all look out in the world around us, the world not being all that it was meant to be, not being a world where we experience left to our own devices relationship with God in the presence of God. Because the first people, as all of us since have done, have had wrong-hearted mistrust of God rooted in lies about God, which led them and all of us since to live as if we were our own gods. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's not just law-breaking, rule-breaking, although it's not less than that, it's, but what it's founded in is something in the heart, a wrong-hearted mistrust of God rooted in lies about God that leads us to act as if we were our own gods. And so we define goodness and wrongness on our own terms in ways that are convenient for us. We act in ways that aren't according to our created design and God's heart, but in ways that seem convenient to us in the moment. And all of that is what the Bible calls sin. And the result of sin is that the world is in a spiral of not being what it was meant to be. It's in bondage to brokenness. And that's our lived reality, apart from an intervention from God's grace. But it's also a story of redemption a story of God from the very beginning promising to set things right. That in his love, God has committed himself to reconcile a people who were once alienated from him because of sin and to restore his whole creation from its bondage, from the curse of sin, to make everything as it was always meant to be, but even sweeter for having been redeemed. And God promised this from the very beginning. Right after the first people have sinned, in Genesis 3.15, God promises to one day send one who would make it right. And I'm summarizing because the language is poetic, but what he essentially says is one day there will come a person who will undo the power of sin at its source, defeat the power of sin at its source, and in the process be mortally wounded himself. It's a, it's a commitment of God from the very beginning to make his creation whole, to redeem you and me from our slavery to our own sin. And God continued the outworking of this plan through his dealings with his people. He called a family out, the family of Abraham, to be his partners, to do what he would do to redeem all the peoples of the earth, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he worked through this, this, this family, the children of Israel, and he gave them ways, a way to live and a land to live in that symbolized the presence and goodness of God, the wholeness of life as it was meant to be. And yet what we see in the story is that the same wrong-hearted heart sickness of sin 
existed in God's people who had his promises, who had his presence in, in a way, though not in full, and yet they themselves still had this unbreakable pull towards unfaithfulness in God. They were still driven by slavery to this bondage of sin. And that's how the Old Testament closes, that God's people are driven out of their land. They're brought back in God's graciousness. But it's still, God's promises still aren't all the way fulfilled. That still, it's unclear how God's promises would be fulfilled. They're not yet fulfilled. And God's people were waiting with bated breath to find out who would be the one God promised to find out how God would bring sinners like you and me back into relationship with God in the presence of God. The thing that we most long for, the thing that we were made to find the hope of our souls in, relationship with him in his presence. And it's in that backdrop, with that hope and longing of expectation that Simeon has, that Simeon encounters Jesus. And when he encounters Jesus, a helpless, small, vulnerable baby, God speaks to him and says, this is the one. This is the one that your longings have been set on. Relationship with me, in my presence. This is the one to undo the power of sin that's made my creation in, in slavery to brokenness. This is the one who would reconcile a once alienated people back to God. This is the one through whom God would restore his whole creation. This is the one through whom God would bring sinners like you and me back into relationship with him in his presence. This is the one who, as Todd's going to talk about next week, is God who became one of us. Jesus is the one through whom God would meet the deepest longings of our hearts, relationship with him in his presence. And Simeon responds in this outbursting of song and praise. And in verse 29 and 32, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. He explodes into praise because he's seen the one. He's seen the one through whom God would make everything right, the one through whom he would bring us into relationship with God in the presence of God. There are so many good things God gives his people. Forgiveness, eternal life, community with God's people, provision for our needs, the list goes on. But the sweetest gift that God gives is himself relationship with him in his presence. The one that we most long for, even if we not, don't realize it yet. Even if we don't realize it if left to our own devices. And this he accomplishes through Jesus. And here's where this incredible truth meets our cultural moment. There is no greater balm to our souls in this moment of anxiousness than knowing that we, that we have everything, the one thing that our souls most need. And in our mar moment mar marked by anxiousness, anyone who would follow Jesus has God himself, the one that we were made for, the one who meets the deepest needs of our souls. So friends, what would our lives look like if by faith we really embrace that truth? 
What would this church look like if we really believed that we had the deepest needs of our souls, as we really do, met, it, met because of Jesus? What would the South Bay look like if we really embraced the truth that we have the deepest needs of our soul met in God and everything that he is for us in Jesus? It cuts through the anxiousness of our moment because in our moment of anxiousness, knowing that we have everything that we need changes everything. There may be many things up in the air. There may be many points of tension and divisiveness and things over which we might legitimately feel some sense of concern. But all of it is reframed when we know deep in our souls that we have the one thing, the one being, God himself, that we most need. And this we have in Jesus. Simeon sees it. What would it look like if we saw it? Which brings us to our next point, which is much shorter than our first point, so don't worry. But the question then that has to be asked is, if this is the one that we most long for, even if we don't yet see it, the question is, how do we see it? And this passage gives us a hint, at least, to the only way to really see it. Because even though Jesus is the one that we most long for, God speaks through Simeon that many would miss it. Many, even of the people of God who had God's promises, believed God's word, and yet they would still miss it. This is what he says in verse 34 to 35. Simeon blessed them, blessed Mary and Joseph, and he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, that Jesus would come a sign from God, no greater sign from God than God becoming one of us and entering into his creation. And that God's people, many of God's people, not all, but many, would oppose it. Many who believed the promises of God wouldn't see it. And he says, a sword will pierce through your own souls also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So Jesus is the one that our hearts most long for. And yet there's a possibility of missing it. Yet there's a possibility of believing and checking off right boxes and yet still missing Jesus. So the question then is, how do we actually see Jesus? And Luke immediately follows this up with an example of the kind of person who will receive Jesus. And it's a theme that's echoed throughout Luke's gospel. It's, 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 a, it's a, a theme that gets picked up all over and it, it, it begins before this actually, but here's this beautiful portrait of it. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36 through 38, many will oppose Jesus. Many won't receive him. And then here's the kind of person who does. In verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the question is hanging. The tension is thick. If some are going to oppose Jesus, what does it look like to receive him? What's the kind of person that receives him? And here we, give an, we get an answer. Anna widowed almost her entire adult life, humble, lowly, 84 years old, well past the prime years of her life, especially in a society like ancient, the ancient Near East. A person with no pretense, no claim to power 
or influence. Seeking God. Hope set on God in her humility. And she walks into the temple at this very moment and says, "Ah, this is the one. This is the one. It's like, as Simeon prophesied, it's the rise and fall of many. That the prideful would be brought low and the humble would be raised up in Jesus. That those who see Jesus for really is are those of the humble in spirit. Those who know they have great need. Those who know that they're not enough in and of themselves. And so the question then that's, that is begging to be asked is, what is it about pride that prevents us from truly seeing Jesus, who is the one that we actually long for? And what is it about humility that opens us up to Jesus, the one we most need? The answer is, it's all about dealing honestly with a barrier that stands between us and God. Our sin. Our inability to rescue ourselves. Our inability to cross the barrier that stands between us and God. To to deal honestly with the things that hold us back. To put it simply, you cannot receive the king if you're too busy trying to be your own king. And we cannot daily receive everything that King Jesus is for us if we're too busy trying to be our own king in some way. Which makes this a warning through the example of Anna for all of us, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey. That all of us are to be the humble of spirit. And it's not merely a equality of our station in life. Because yes, Anna is a portrait of her life in living picture of humility of spirit, a person of no power or influence. And yet the gospel writer Luke is someone who's also come to see Jesus, and we know from history that he is someone of much more influence than someone like Anna, well-educated, of the cultural majority of the day, a doctor, someone who's well-spoken. If He's a wonderful writer. If you read his writing, someone of much more influence, and yet he sees it also. And so it's not merely about a station of life, but a position of the heart. Do we see our great need And in our great need, do we see everything that God is for us in Jesus? Are we the humble of spirit? Do we know that we need him? And in knowing our need, are we brought to the one who meets the deepest needs of our souls? So how do you get there? I'm going to close with this. How do we become the humble of spirit and find true life in Jesus? First, Listen to the holy discontent of your soul. When we set our hope in things other than the hope that we were made for, when we worship things other than what we were made to worship, we feel it in our souls. We feel it. Maybe not at first. Maybe slowly over time. Maybe it takes a long time for us eventually to be honest with ourselves that it's not working. But we feel Feel it in our souls. Listen to the holy discontent of your soul to find those places in life where you're not fully opening yourselves up to receive the king, not fully letting him be king in your life. Uh, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a book about 100 years ago called Day of the Locust. It's about a bunch of people who are transplants to L.A. from the East Coast and this portrait of L.A. at the time, but he's got this beautiful insight of the holy discontent of the soul in one of his passages. He describes people who have moved here from the East Coast, and he says, once there, once here in L.A., once on the West Coast, they discover that the sunshine isn't enough. 
they thought that just moving to the West Coast would change everything. If I just get there, then everything will be all right in my soul. But they discover that the sunshine isn't enough. They eventually get tired of oranges, even of avocados and passion fruit. Don't know how that's possible, but I guess it is. Nothing happens. They don't know what to do with their time. They watch the waves come in at Venice, but after you've seen one wave, you've seen them all. Their boredom becomes more and more terrible. It's a portrait of people that thought there was this one thing. If I just get that, if I just make it, if I just start a new life in a new place, then everything will be all right. And they get there, and there's these wonderful things about these new places. Sunshine's awesome. The beach is awesome. Avocados are awesome. But it's not enough. And their boredom, it's, he says, becomes more and more terrible. About a year ago, I saw someone tweet something very similar, to put it in more modern terms. The tweet was this. No offense, but what is like dot, 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 the point? Are we just supposed to work and buy coffee and listen to podcasts until we die? I'm bored. The point is this. Listen to the holy discontent of your soul. Listen to those places where your soul is not at peace and follow it as far as it takes you. But secondly, you can't just stop there because if that were, the, that were all there was to the story, it'd be a pretty sad story. Don't just stop there. But secondly, in the holy discontent of your soul, look at what God has done for you in Jesus. Verse 24 is this kind of throwaway line for many of us. But it says that Mary and Joseph offered as their sacrifice a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. And I joked earlier, it's like, and a partridge and a pear tree. That might just seem insignificant. But knowing the story of the scriptures, this was the sacrifice of a poor family. A family of any means would have offered a lamb, a firstborn lamb, a spotless lamb, the best. But Mary and Joseph didn't have that luxury. They offered the sacrifice of a poor family. And this hints at the very beginning of Jesus' life of what God would do for us in Jesus. That when God came, when he came to become king in Jesus and to make all that was lost at the fall right, he himself came in humility. He made himself low. He took the form of a servant. He entered all the way into the human experience. And we know as we follow the story to its end that he followed us all the way into the human experience to the point of bearing our sin in our place in his death on the cross. When we see what God has done for us in Jesus, not just to come and say, here I am, but to come and undo the power of sin by paying the debt of sin in our place, in his death on the cross. When we see a God who loves us like that, who loves us to the point where he's willing to make it hurt, he's willing to pay a cost that he by right should not have to pay, our debt of sin, and he takes it into himself because of his great love for you and me, when in the midst of our holy discontent we see that, we see who Jesus really is the one who meets the deepest longings of our souls. And so this Advent, that's what our task is to do, to listen to the holy discontent of our souls and follow it all the way to the point where it takes us to Jesus. And everything that God is for us in him is we see Jesus, our Savior, who lived and died in our place, that we might become all that God meant us to be, that we might live in relationship with God in the presence of God. Right now, as we close our service here, we have time to celebrate who God is for us as we celebrate communion. It's just right here. It's juice, and it's a cracker. But what it symbolizes is Jesus' body broken for us, 
his sinless life lived in our place, that he entered in. It symbolizes his blood that was shed for us. And so now we have a moment to remember that, to see Jesus for who he really is. And as we do, and as we look forward to the Christmas season, we do so seeing Jesus, the one we really long for. And we enter in to who he is for us to become the kind of people who in humility see him for who he really is. Would you guys pray with me? You can close on your own time as you take the cup and the cracker and have a moment to yourself, and that'll be all we have for, for us this morning. You guys pray with me. God, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for all that you are for us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Jesus, you are the one that we long for. You're the one that meets the deepest needs of our souls, and you've come to rescue us. Would you help us to see it? Would you help us to listen to those places of unrest in our souls, the holy discontent of our souls, and would you help us to follow it all the way to where it leads us to Jesus? Wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, in relationship to you, whether we've known you for some time or wouldn't say that we know you yet, would you draw us closer and closer to you? Would you draw us to take whatever next step we need to take towards you as we respond to you in your mercy and grace? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.